I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Uh, for several years now, I've been wanting to do this, and I was inspired by an individual of our congregation to do a countdown to Christmas, taking the month of December just to focus on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, every Sunday coming here and learning something new about Him that will allow us to worship Him, uh, glorify Him, magnify Him in and through our lives, and put Him number one in our lives. Or as Paul writes very classically in the book of Colossians, that He may have the preeminence in our lives. Excited about making it all about Jesus? Yes. Amen. Earlier this year, someone from my, our congregation inspired me to do this countdown to Christmas. It was our own lovely Haley Rowe, when in July, she put on her Facebook, only 150 some more days till Christmas. <laughs> now at that time, I wasn't nearly enthusiastic about it as she was, but I applauded her, uh, her love for Christmas. And you know what they say about Christmas, right? The four phases of Christmas. The four phases of Christmas are, number one, you believe in Santa Claus. Number two, you don't believe in Santa Claus. Number three, you become Santa Claus. And number four, you look like Santa Claus. (laughs) Whatever phase you are in, I hope that you still love Christmas as much as I do. And we understand the commercial rhetoric and and the propaganda and all that circulates the day of, uh, of Christmas today in our culture. But you know what? For us who are believers, it's all about Jesus 364 days out of the year, isn't it? But it is an opportunity where the whole world takes a moment of pause to reflect and to remember the birth of our Savior. Now, we understand that he was not born on December 25th. You all understand that, right? It's clear that he was born in the spring. We understand how through history, uh, things changed over the uh, centuries, the decades, and the millenniums uh, to uh, bring us to this December 25th date. But again, as a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what the date is, does it? But you know, for me... If the whole world is thinking about Christmas at this particular time of the year, I'm going to capitalize on that opportunity and I'm going to tell them all about Jesus. This Thanksgiving, I had a beautiful time with my family and uh, we all were thankful for different things. But during the course of the evening, I had been praying all that week that I would have an opportunity to share Christ And there I found myself surrounded at the table with everyone listening to the gospel. Incredible. The opportunities that God will give us. So if the world wants to focus on Jesus, and the world wants to set up mangers and and the little displays to remember that moment, so be it, right? We're going to tell them all about him. So I'd like to begin this morning in our countdown to Christmas with a message called Christmas in the Beginning. And in so doing this this morning, I hope to clear up some of the misconceptions that people have about Jesus. First of all, the misconception that Jesus' life began that day in Bethlehem 
as he was birthed and placed in a manger. Is that when Jesus began? No. No way. And therefore, because he, his existence did not begin at that moment, he was certainly more than just a good person, a teacher, or a mere prophet, wasn't he? Well, some believe that Jesus began at the beginning of creation, and when the angels were created, God created Jesus also. Is that when Jesus began to exist? No. And of course, once we realize that, we realize that he was far superior to any angel that was ever created. In our time together this morning, in this message called Christmas in the Beginning, we're going to look at what is known as the pre-existence of Christ. I'm talking about the pre-pre-existence of Christ. I'm not only talking about the placements throughout the Old Testament where we get a glimpse of Christ... We are going to venture into a part of your Bible that you probably have never looked at before. We are going to be looking at the book that precedes the book of Genesis. How many of your Bibles have a book that precedes the book of Genesis? Pastor, I think you've lost it. We are going to be looking at this page before the book of Genesis. And I'm not talking about the preface. I'm not talking about the index, the explanation of terms. We're going to talk about and understand the time before all things began. And we are going to discover that Jesus was there, making him so much more than just a mere angel. More, so much more than just a mere prophet or a good person or a great teacher. We are going to discover that Jesus is God. God himself. I ask you this morning to let us begin our adventure in the book of John chapter 1. The gospel of John is unique to the other three Gospels. The Gospel of John offers us the evidence that we need to know and understand to discover that Jesus is God. And though He is the Son of God in His uh, distinction in the Trinity, He is God Himself, fully equal with the Father and fully equal with the Spirit. And John gives us, in the first 18 verses, the preface of the entire gospel. He shows and demonstrates that Jesus Christ is God and pre-existed before everything or anything was created. Showing and demonstrating his superiority and demonstrating to all that Jesus is God. As we begin in verse 1, of chapter 1. Let us look here together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men." 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we begin with John's explanation of his genealogy of Jesus Christ from the perspective and the point of deity. Luke and Matthew both give us physical genealogies of Jesus Christ. John gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ to support and to, sh- and to show and demonstrate his, his deity, meaning that he is God. But Eric, it's talking about the word here. I, I, how do we know this is Jesus? Are we in, implying this or are we reading into this? We'll look at verse 14 of that same chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Something's happening here, right? John is speaking of Jesus, and he calls Jesus a very unique term that in our culture wouldn't reverberate as well as it did in the culture in which he wrote it. One pastor wrote, the opening section of John's gospel expresses the most profound truth in the universe in the clearest terms. And John begins his gospel with this third genealogy demonstrating and showing us that he is truly God himself. The Greek word that is used here that is rendered word in our English Bible is a Greek word known as logos which at that time individually meant word or speech, account, story, or message. But between the years 85 and 95 AD, we go back into history and we discover that there were two cultures at that time in Israel. In fact, we can go even farther back before the destruction of the temple. And those two cultures dwelled together and John is addressing both of them at the exact same time. You had the Jewish culture, the residents of Israel, and you also had the Greek culture at that time. And John writing this word logos would have resonated with both of those cultures to show and to demonstrate something significant is happening in the person of Jesus Christ. Because there were there was additional meaning placed upon that word at that time in both of those cultures that gave it much more prominence than what we would define it as today. Words are important today. We know that words can uh, convey meaning, can communicate feeling, can uh, show us and demonstrate to us instruction. We know they can be powerful, they can be destructive, but there's something more that is happening here. For the Jewish person reading this, the first words that they would have been enthralled with was this word beginning that John uses in Greek. Because it echoes that of Genesis 1.1. And in the Greek, it is in a certain term where it states in the beginning of the beginning, when the beginning began. How's that? Say that 10 times fast. Meaning we're talking about before creation ever began. That portion of the beginning. The Jewish people would have heard that and they would have uh, zoned in on that. And then they would have discovered that this word, this logos 
uh, was with God and was God. And all things were created through him. Oh, now who is this person? Because for the Jewish mindset, the creation of all things goes to God. Jehovah. What are you saying, John? But then calling him the Logos, the Jewish mindset would have remembered immediately that God spoke all things into creation. He spoke all things into creation. And now John says, no, we're referring to the one who spoke himself. We're talking about the one who spoke all things into creation, not the words in which he spoke, but the one who spoke them himself. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. By his word, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 107, 20, He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. In Psalm 147.15, again, the power of the word of God. He sent out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly throughout the earth. The Jewish people would have been enthralled with what John was saying. They would have been confronted. They would have been challenged. Because they would have understood this to be God. Now you had the Greeks. Completely different culture altogether, but the Greek word logos had significant meaning to them. They knew it as the impersonal embodiment of reason, which they thought governed the whole universe. That's interesting. That through the words, reason was discovered, and that reason governed the whole universe. Now John says he is the logos. He is the one that is true reason. He is the one that is controlling all the universe from the beginning of the beginning. Around 500 BC, Greek philosophers began to adopt the word and use it to signify that which gives shape, form, or life to the material universe. The word. And now John says it is this logos which gave shape, form, life, and material to the universe. Oh, and by the way, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus. So we are confronted that in the beginning, the word, the Logos, religious implications to the Jewish, philosophical implications to the Greeks, is now converged into the person of Jesus Christ. And let us see what John proclaims about him. Number one, that he is from the beginning of the beginning, that which is that before it began. And that the word was with God. And then we have that phrase at the end of sentence in verse one that challenges us to our core. That this logos was God himself. He is claiming that the one who became flesh and dwelt amongst them, this person, Jesus Christ, who was humbly born in a manger, went 33 years before ending his life on the cross. This is God. That is what he is saying. John is proclaiming. And then John goes through the entire gospel to substantiate that claim that we may believe that Jesus is truly who he said he was. So now we look at the beginning. 
of the beginning before things began. Before Genesis 1.1, we are now told that Jesus existed, pre-existing even creation itself. And so it is that portion of time, which we call eternity past, that I want to explore with you this morning to discover that this babe lying in a manger is so much more than we could possibly ever imagine. And as we look to eternity past, the only thing that we would discover occupied within that portion of time is God Himself. Self-sufficient. Self-reliant. Lacking nothing and perfect in every way. Every attribute spoken and given about Him in His special revelation of the Word of God already encompassed in He Himself before the creation of the world. For creation added nothing to him, nor took anything away from him. Completely self-sustained, self-existing, self-reliant, in need of nothing. Perfect, holy, loving, merciful. All the attributes are there in the beginning. However, though, we would be confronted with the reality of the triune nature of God there in the beginning. As we gazed upon him at that portion of time, we would discover that he is three in one. A truth that scripture communicates from Genesis to Revelation, giving us either shadows and types and hints or actual proclamations itself, declaring that God is one in three persons. The Trinity. An essential doctrine for you and I who are Christians. In fact, one wrote that the definition of this doctrine, the proper definition of the Trinity states, the Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence. So completely united as to form one God. The divine nature subsides in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One summed it up this way when we discovered the Trinity, which, let us understand, could be a month-long journey in teaching. If we were to gather every day for 30 days, we still wouldn't grasp all of the understanding of the Trinity that the Scripture gives us and offers us. So I'm really giving you a summation this morning. As one summed it up, he says, concerning the Trinity, God is one in regards to essence. God is three with respects to person. The three persons have distinct relationships. The three persons are equal in authority in all manners. So we're confronted with the reality that the God we serve, the God who is one, is divinely in three persons. Not three persons separate, but three persons as one. And that is demonstrated for us in Scripture. It's not that God manifested himself one way at one particular time and then manifested himself a different way at another particular time. That's called modalism. We reject that as Christians. But let us remember the baptism of Jesus. When John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and the Father spoke to say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three in one place at one time. 
in three different forms. As one scholar wrote, he says, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. To study the Bible's teachings on the Trinity gives us great insight into the question that is at the center of all of our seeking after God. What is God like in Himself? Here we learn that in Himself, He is His very being. God exists in the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet He is one God. And I know that all of us could appreciate the incredible truth to that and how mind-blowing it is to consider that but that's what the bible teaches us about god so now we are with this triune god before creation began and already the bible gives us glimpses into what is happening at that time before he spoke anything into creation something was already occurring And so this morning, I want you and I to walk through these verses together to discover what was happening before the beginning of time. And then I think we are going to all discover how incredible it was that time before the beginning. Because Jesus was there. Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God in the beginning. As we look at the person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, let us understand that we have glimpses into this time past throughout the Bible. And I want you to walk through it with me as you look in your own Bible at the verses that give us insight to this period of time before Genesis 1.1. Let's begin in John 17.24. John 17.24. John 17, some have proclaimed, and I think rightfully so, is the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. It is a time where we are privileged to listen to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, pray to God the Father while He is here on earth. And in verse 24 of this prayer, and I'd encourage you to read all of it on your own when you have a moment to do so, but let us look in verse 24 as we are given our first glimpse into this period of time before the beginning began. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, speaking of you and I, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. The first thing that we see and are given Evidence two is the fact that the triune God that we served loved each and every individual portion of his existence. The Father loved the Son. This has all kinds of implications for us today. The very first implication that it should uh, warrant and we should discover is the fact that if love existed at this time, then who is the creator of love? God. Why? Because He is love, right? 1 John tells us that. So our definition of love has to take us back to the actual character of God. 
It's not what we have made love to mean today in our society and in our culture. And how that love is demonstrated is not determined by our society and our culture. Love began with God because the Father loved the Son. That's huge, isn't it? It wakes us up to the reality that this dynamic component of our existence, a a love that Shakespeare himself had difficulty capturing within his writings, God is saying existed in me between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is praying, Oh, Father, I pray that they would see that glory that I had previously. A glory that Peter and John and James got to see momentarily there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Jesus is saying, I want all of those who believe in me, all of those who have faith in me, all of those who follow me to see me glorified once again from the glory in which I exited to come to this earth to be a man and to die for the sins of the world. The very first thing is love. I don't think we can stress the love of God enough. I'm a strong proponent of that. I remember being a young man myself, and I feel like I was pretty hard-hearted, hardened on the outside by the circumstances of life that I found myself within. And yet, when I continued to hear people tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and he demonstrated that love by going to the cross for me, it chipped away at that hardness just continued to chip away at that hardness. When we, tell, when we talk to people today and, they, and young ladies for the very first time discover that their God the Father loves them in an unconditional way, in a pure way, they often don't know how to embrace it because they've never experienced it before. I think that it's interesting to me that the most famous verse of the Bible... John 3.16 incorporates that love. Oh, I think it's important that people understand that under the weight of sin that they are separated from God. We cannot exclude that from our gospel presentation one for a moment. We cannot exclude the fact that the penalty for that sin is death and separation from God for all eternity in hell. We cannot, we cannot spare the bad news and simply give them the good news. But once they have heard the bad news, let us remind them of the love that God has for them. And this is the way he demonstrated it for them. I think it's incredible to discover this. It tells me that I can't understand love unless I understand God. I think this is why Paul had such difficulties, yet with such articulation and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13, drafted this definition of love, which was not a definition as a word found in a dictionary, but it was a definition more of a description of a person. Simply remembering the life of Jesus Christ. Father, you loved me from the beginning, before the foundations of the world. There's that term that allows us to see into that past prior to Genesis 1-1. And the first thing we discovered, the Father's love for the Son and the Son appealing to the Father on the basis of that love that we would be with Him and see Him in all of His glory. 
oh, it just changes your whole perspective of that baby lying in the manger, doesn't it? If you travel with me throughout the, through the New Testament, let's find ourselves in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, we have one of the most incredibly doctrine-fold chapters of the Bible. But let us find ourselves once again before Genesis 1-1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I see Paul with his hands up in the air, praising God for the realities of these truths who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that is in heavenly places, verse 3, verse 4, even as he has chosen us in him before what? The foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before anything began, God chose us in him from the foundations of the world. The doctrine of election, a doctrine that unfortunately today has caused more debate and more confusion and more um, division than I think it ever was meant to to produce at all. That God chose us in him, sovereignly chose us. The Bible tells us it was based on his foreknowledge. And we can explore that at another time, but let us see that before the foundations of the world began, Paul says that we were predestined in what? Love. Did you notice that? That same love that the father had for the son now predestined us from the foundations of the world to be in him that we would be blessed, blameless, and holy, that we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. We already, before, the found, before anything ever happened, God is claiming that he saw us there. Let us understand that salvation is completely a work of God in an individual's life. I can't tell you that after 30 years of studying the Bible that I understand the salvation process as thoroughly as God does. Please forgive me. But I know this, that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And my job is to take the gospel throughout my world, to my friends, to my family, to people I meet, and share it with them and let it have its perfect work on their life. For it is God who opens their eyes and opens their hearts to the reality of their need for him. I love what D.L. Moody says, God save the elect and elect some more. My understanding of election does not keep me from zealously sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because I believe that God has asked me to be responsible for what I am to be responsible for proclaiming the gospel to all of the world. But at the same time, I understand completely that in my finite position, I'm not going to fully understand and embrace an infinite God. And I don't think he asks me to. 
But he says, I can rejoice in this fact that from the foundations of the world, he has chosen us to be in him based upon the foreknowledge he has. And what that means is that before anything began, he already began a work in us. Again, as I say, salvation is a work of the Lord. Romans 8.30 tells us, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. To those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone should boast. I believe that God, in his infinite wisdom, wants us to take the gospel into all of the world, that we may proclaim it to everyone without limitation. When I am sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, I never sit there and consider, I wonder if they're elect or not. I just let it go and let God do the work. I know there have been many explanations of election, but I'd like to bring it to a place where I personally turn to when I read of Paul who writes about the election and he talks about us praying for all people. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, And this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. There's my mandate right there. Pray for them and share the gospel with everybody. Can we accept that? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 as we look back into eternity past once again. As we come to 1 Peter, we once again are given a glimpse into this eternity past, starting in verse 18. And let us begin reading from there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, or silver or gold, I should say, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot nor blemish, who was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifested in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What is Peter saying? Before the foundations of the world, Jesus Christ knew, the second person of the Trinity knew that he was going to have to be the sacrifice on our behalf and was willing to do so. Before anything began, we are given this glimpse to that period of time. We see love that God has for the Son, who is that love then bestowed upon us. We see that we have been chosen in him before the foundations of the world. We see that Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world was prepared as the eternal son to come on our behalf and to lay himself down as the atoning sacrifice for you and I. And he decided to do that before it all began. 
God knowing what was going to happen before it happened and yet allowed it to happen and was willing for it to happen. It's amazing to me. Oh, I know it raises many questions. Well, if God knew all the pain and the suffering that was going to occur here on this earth, then why did he ever begin this process? Because he loves us. And understand that he did not exempt himself from that pain and suffering, did he? That he himself went through it by being rejected by his own creation, by his own chosen people, the Jewish leaders at that time, to be mocked and to be ridiculed, to be betrayed with a kiss. He was then given to the Romans and placed himself under the authority of his own personal creation as Pilate put him before the people, allowing the people to choose between him and Barabbas, and who did they choose? And yet it was God who was standing there that willfully allowed himself to go through that, knowing from the very beginning that he would have to do so. It was God that they took to the post and whipped 39 times. And they mocked him with a robe of purple and a crown of thorns. And he knew that from the beginning and still was willing to do it because he loved you and I. That where he is, we may be with him also. That a people out of this creation would be drawn on to him and would glorify him for all eternity for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And he was willing to do so before it all began. He knew what he was getting into. God knew what was going to happen. Then they crucified him between thieves. And then God demonstrated that the sacrifice had been accepted on, our, on his behalf for our sins as Christ raised on the third day. And he knew all of that from the very beginning. As one wrote, he says, This was God's plan before the foundation of the world which demonstrates that mankind had nothing to do with the plan God has chosen to put into effect. If this plan was conceived in the mind of God before the foundations of the world, God would have no one to consult with except himself. However, this plan includes the salvation of mankind, was not effected until Jesus appeared. He died, but God raised him from the dead, returning him to heaven where the believer's hope is fixed. And Peter says that from the very beginning, God knew what he was going to do. Lastly, we come to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, we read, And all who dwell on the earth in that time, that terrible time of the tribulation, will worship everyone whose name has not been written in the, before the foundations of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In Revelation, we are told that in the end, those whose names are not found in the book of life will be swept up in the devastating delusion of the Antichrist. They will worship the beast at that time and they will all be judged for doing so for all eternity in the great lake of fire found later on in the book of Revelation chapter 20. It is interesting to me that before the foundations of the world we found love. Before the foundations of the world we found our 
election. Before the foundations of the world, we found our atonement. And before the foundations of the world, we discovered the judgment upon those who do not believe. What would you call those four things put together? Starts with a G and ends with an L. Can help you out. The gospel. The love that God has for us to intervene on our fallen state, to choose us in Him before the foundations of the world, to then set apart His Son to become the atonement, the payment for those sins, and then to hold the non-believing world to judgment for their disbelief in Jesus Christ and the sins that remain theirs and undealt with before God in Christ. Before the foundations of the world, before the creation of anything, the gospel was written and architected in the mind and the heart of God. I find that fascinating. And certainly now when we look upon that manger or we drive uh, by a nativity scene and we discover that Jesus wasn't born into existence at the time of his physical birth. That's when he took on human flesh. That's when he became a man along with being 100% God to come and to pay the penalty for you and I. Let us understand that the pre-existing Christ, who we're going to look at more in the next couple of weeks, as we get into the Old Testament, we are going to discover that Christ appeared in the Old Testament in what is called a theophany, meaning he demonstrated that he existed before his birth. And then we have the prophecies, 333 of them that we're going to look at each an individual over the next 14 years. Now, 333 prophecies that are declared throughout the Old Testament saying that Jesus Christ would come and even give us the place of his birth But let us not forget that we have one more thing to consider concerning this one called the Word. Let us go back to John. And this will lead us into our time next week. For we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was nothing or not anything made that was made. All creation, all physical creation was through Christ. For Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. As one wrote, he said, Christ is not only the one through whom all things came to be, but also the one by whom they continue to exist. Two other New Testament verses parallel this description of Christ. Through all things him were made, John 1, 3, and Christ the Son of is the one through whom the Father made the universe, Hebrews 1, 2. And in closing, let us turn to 2 Timothy and read these verses to show you that the apostles and those who have gone before 
had this same understanding of the nature of Jesus, that he pre-existed before his birth there in Bethlehem underneath that star. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, let us read together. Let us take these words to heart after everything we have learned about the person of Jesus Christ this morning. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, Paul speaking of himself, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 